All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together as family, to do this thing together, to break bread, the very bread of life, Father. Thank you for faithfully providing us a space, a time, and a moment to reflect on our own lives, to ingest the Word of God so that you might impart by faith or by grace new kinds of faith, Father, that set us free. Thank you for the simple things. Thank you for reminding us of such things. And thank you for always taking care of us, no matter what. Thank you for always being there for us. Thank you for sending your Son, our great shepherd, to guide us. Thank you for all the spiritual gifts that help a ministry like this function day in and day out so that we might dine this way. We pray especially for those still lost in this world. What a terrible, terrible place to be, Father. And we just pray that we are given the appointments at the right time, in your timing, of course, to evangelize these people. We want them as brothers and sisters in your Son. Of course, we are most grateful and thankful for your Son's work to make such things a reality, to give us those opportunities, to encourage us, to enable us, to empower us so that we're filled to be able to do such things. We do just ask also for blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, settling in on the big picture, this is a wrap-up of the last couple of uh, months. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. Um, the last lesson we had in our primary series, Why Are the Apostles So Encouraging? By Grace They Were Prepared, was part 18, back on uh, April 25th. So it's already June. It's been a couple of solid months since we've been on that topic, but we haven't finished it. That's sort of the anchor of our studies uh, lately. We've just had a few sidebars. So the interesting thing is, and this is the commission that I gave Scott this past week um, in his review, was look for the themes. He was specifically commissioned to look at the themes in the India missions, but my commission is look at the themes throughout the last two months and um, woven into our lessons for a variety of reasons has been an emphasis on this idea of the big picture. It's really easy uh, when you study the Bible the way we do, as diligently as we do, it's really easy to get stuck in the weeds sometimes. And when you get stuck in the weeds, you start losing your bearings. Uh, and you can get all lopsided, and most of you are already thinking that, yep, I've been there more than once in my life. And that's a dangerous place to be. It's wonderful to go deep, but you have to always be tethered to the big picture. And so just um, to reflect on where we've been uh, over the last couple of months, this is the North Christian Church curriculum. Over the last couple of months, why the Apostles So Encouraging is where we left off again in April, late April, part 18. Then we went into With God, All Things Are Possible, two parts there. Then we had when subjectivity becomes a culturally accepted norm. There were seven parts on that one. You see there's a certain immediacy in some of these lessons. 
That's why the Spirit injects them into our curriculum. Uh, American Dating is a Counterfeit. That was a five-part series. And then there was the special Indian mission, mission, message, mission messages, which were seven parts, um, or six parts, excuse me. Oh, actually, it was seven, wasn't it? Uh, peace and Stability from Honoring God's Authority. Uh, that was uh, this past week's lessons. And there were two parts there. And so there's been a lot of moving parts. But if you've been paying attention, you know that this idea of the big picture has always been woven in. So it's good to step back once in a while, not just as a shepherd. I do this all the time, of course, but not just, it, this isn't just on my heart. It shouldn't be just on me, but for you as sheep to consider where the Spirit's taken us and where He might be taking us, where we've been, where we're going, where we are right now. If there's one sidebar that the Spirit's made uh, use of in our curriculum, it's been learning to see this big picture. And I've loved the good work uh, He's done in all of you because as I see it, uh, and as many of you has, have intimated, seeing the big picture results in freedom. Seeing the big picture results in freedom. So our first principle this morning is up here on the board, big picture freedom. Seeing the forest through the trees is critical to understanding the very mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. Our Lord himself sees a much bigger picture than we ever could, Romans 11.33. Yet, it behooves us to seek his truth, for this there is freedom, that should say, or this is freedom in him. John 8.32, the truth will make you free. Again, seeing the forest through the trees is critical. Jesus Christ um, existed in the sphere of this big picture. That was his reality, and we're going to develop this a little bit this morning, some more. Our Lord himself sees a much bigger picture, but that shouldn't thwart us. In fact, it behooves us to seek his truth, for this is freedom in him. This is how we might define freedom. Where do we find freedom? In truth. In Him. And the truth will make you free. Remember, He is described as the fullness of grace and truth. So says Scripture. So if we're going to find freedom, we have to find it in truth. And if you put those two things together, where do you find it? In Him. So I think what the Spirit's trying to convey to you first off is up here on the board, and this is a huge principle, to understand the truth is to understand the person of Christ. To understand the truth is to understand the person of Christ. I believe the lackadaisical Christian, I would say most people in churches right now, and I'm not trying to be insulting, I'm just trying to be honest, don't know Christ. They know parts of Him, they know doctrines, they know... Um, you know, descriptions of him. They know certain scriptures. Um, they can recite passages maybe. But they don't actually know Jesus Christ. So they're missing the main point. The main point is not to be able to regurgitate, you know, verses of scripture. The, the, the main point is to know your Savior. Because remember, he is Lord and Savior. Lord means he's your master. And he's a real person. 
So to understand the truth is to understand the person of Christ, not just the words or the verses in the Bible that describe his mind. And I was thinking about an analogy here to help with this. If I were to spend the next 10 minutes describing, say, a buddy of mine who you've never met, what you'll have is a list of personal characteristics that describe him, possibly very well even. But he isn't to be considered merely a list of individual traits. That's the point. Rather, as is the case with Christ, we will seek to understand his person as the sum total of the parts. And if you find this person attractive, and I'm talking uh, platonically, of course, if you find this person attractive, you'll probably desire to meet him someday in person. You'll probably say, that sounds like a cool guy. I want to meet that guy. He sounds like a good, you know, good old chap. I don't know if that's how you speak, but maybe some of you are from Scottish descent. So you'll probably desire to meet him someday in person. This happens every time we are introduced to someone new, doesn't it? We exchange a few facts about each other, work, family, hobbies, etc. And then if we are so inclined to befriend each other, we seek to understand who we really are, our person. And sometimes it's not just language. It's not, you know, I do this or I've done that or I've been here or I've done that. Sometimes you learn about another person sitting in silence together. Maybe they're sitting there reading their Bible and you're sitting here reading your Bible. And maybe you just exchange a glance. Or maybe just the fact that they're still there and you're still here and you haven't left each other's presence, speaks volumes about your friendship. Do you understand what I'm getting at? There's an awful lot of things that, that manifest when we learn about a person. So I don't know about all of you, but I don't want to be a walking resume. I really don't. Or a list of personality traits. I want others to know me. If you're going to know me, I don't want you to know. I mean, a lot of, you know, you know, a lot of characteristics or traits or descriptors of individuals precede them. Usually someone has introduced you or, you know, you've heard about this person through the grapevine, you know, because of a friend. And next thing you know, you meet them and then you finally get to know them. But the end goal is not, the end goal is to, to know the person. So this is the same with Christ, who, in fact, makes some pretty stark distinctions between those who know him personally and those who only know of him. Go to Matthew 7.21. Matthew 7.21. So this is not a novel concept. This is what Jesus Christ wanted. He didn't want you just to know facts about him. Listen, there's a lot of unbelievers in this world that know a lot about Jesus Christ. You know why? Because they spent the first, who knows, 20 years of their life going to church with their parents. And then they made this decision, I, I just don't care. I'm not, you know, Jesus, eh, I could take it or leave him, whatever. And so they know a lot about Jesus Christ. They could probably maybe even, given their upbringing, recite passages of Scripture, John 3.16 and Acts 16.31 and Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ. They can do all these things, but you know what? They don't have saving faith. 
So there's, there are unbelievers even that know an awful lot about the person of Christ but don't know him. They know of him. So Jesus Christ had no tolerance for this. Matthew 7, 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, this is, this is Jesus, okay? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many, many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. <gasps> what? Yeah. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a big deal. Up here on the board, I never knew you. These are Jesus' words. He is saying that he doesn't acknowledge some people as his own. Obviously, he's speaking to these people, you know, in uh, figuratively speaking. It's not like he doesn't know someone exists, but he's saying, I don't know you that way. We are not intimate that way. These are Jesus' words, I never knew you. He is saying that he doesn't acknowledge some people as his own. He is the great shepherd and he knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. John 10, 27. It's a very, there, let me put it this way. Even, not to be gross on a Sunday morning, or it's not gross, but not to be graphic, but even legitimate sexual intercourse between a husband and a wife is not as intimate as this relationship. This relationship is eternal. So he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. This is a very intimate thing. This is an intimacy that doesn't exist with others. Go to John 10.25. John 10.25. See, this is the blasphemy that exists even in Christian churches. If you ask most people that go to church on Sundays, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. But I know for a fact, not because I think so, but because the Bible says so, that there are going to be people that are in church right now, that Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. But didn't we, but, 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 uh, yeah, but, 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 that's exactly the truth. I never knew you. You never opened up your heart to me. We never had that intimacy. You never wanted me. So therefore, you will die in your sins. John 10.25, Jesus answered them, and I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Those are the ones he says, I never knew you. My sheep, the ones he knows, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Do you see it? Before he said, I never knew you. Here he says, I know them. There's your distinction. And they follow me. That's what, for lack of a better term, that's what lovers, true lovers, and I don't mean this in any other way than the purest sense of godly love. If, you're, if you love Jesus Christ, guess what you're going to do? You're going to follow him. And he's going to hold you, just like he said. I lost not one. 
He's going to hold you. He's not even going to let you go. Isn't that comforting? He's not going to let you go, even if you kick a little bit in your flesh. He's not going to let you go. Why? Because he's the perfect lover. He's your husband-to-be. He's not interested in divorce. And in his mind, as I taught last time, divorce isn't even an option in this case. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Again, in Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says prophetically, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. So you see the contrast up here on the board again. These are Jesus' words. He's saying that he doesn't acknowledge some people as his own. But we just saw that he acknowledges some as his own. He is the great shepherd, and he knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. We just saw that John 10, 27. This is an intimacy that doesn't exist with others, and it's eternal. This intimacy brings us right back to this big picture we began with this morning. That is to say that the more of this big picture you have, the greater your understanding of God's will in your life will be. And with that understanding, which is only available to true believers, you will be granted freedom by grace. You will be granted freedom by grace. So reflect on this for a second. When you were saved, you were redeemed. When you were saved, you were redeemed. Redemption means that you were purchased by the blood of the Lamb from the slave market of sin, from the bondage of sin, where there's no freedom. You were redeemed. You were purchased. You were bought with a price. You didn't pay the price. It was the blood of the Lamb. And you know what? When you think about it that way as a believer, man, I I was redeemed. You should remember that there was a true purpose. There was an end goal of this redemption. And Scripture gives it to us clearly. Why did he do it? Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom. That's why. He said, I'm going to redeem you. You're in the slave market of sin with no way out. So I'm going to pay the ultimate price, separation from my Father, even though I'm perfect, for the sake of your freedom. So you can walk out of that prison sentence. So it was for a purpose. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Only a redeemed person can walk out of the prison cell they were born into. Only a redeemed person can hear the voice of their great shepherd. And therefore, only a redeemed person will truly follow Jesus. This is the point that Jesus establishes between the unregenerate, unredeemed, who he will say, I never knew you, in the end, and the redeemed, who he has already called and is leading in time. Look at John 10, 27 again. What does it say? It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's what true believers do. 
I didn't say that. Do you understand? I didn't say that. Jesus Christ said that. He says, if we have this intimacy, we're in love. You will follow me. As we'll end with this morning, uh, Peter said that. To whom else are we going to go? Who who else are we going to follow? I mean, who, who else should a bride follow other than her husband? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. I mentioned that earlier. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He's not going to let you go. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Up here on the board. I and the Father are one. This not only means that Jesus Christ is God, it also implies that His mind is intrinsically the same as the mind of His Father. What the Father wants, the Son wants. What He plans, the Son executes, and the Spirit empowers. Such is unity. This is the big picture. Let me say it again. This not only means that Jesus Christ is God, we know He is. It also implies that His mind is intrinsically the same as the mind of His Father. What the Father wants, the Son wants. What He plans, the Son executes, and the Spirit empowers. Such is unity. Not to get too far off topic this morning, but this is something that you all need to ponder as you consider the good work the Spirit's been doing in this congregation. To our opening principle up here on the board, big picture freedom. Seeing the forest through the trees is critical to understanding the very mind of Christ. We just saw a taste of it. We just got a small taste of it. I never knew you, but I know my sheep. Oh, and by the way, I and the Father are one, so everything you read about, even what the Spirit convicts you of, we're all in perfect harmony. You see? Seeing the forest through the trees is critical to understanding the very mind of Christ. Our Lord Himself sees a much bigger picture. We have to concede that than we ever could. Yet, it behooves us to seek His truth, for this is freedom in Him. The truth will make you free. That's our calling. Seek the truth. He says, if you're mine, you can go out and find green pasture. Same passage. You're going to come in and out of the gate, and you're going to, you know, I'm going to count you. I'm not going to lose anybody. Um, and you're going to go out and, have, and find green pasture. That's what you're doing right now. You're nuzzling on grass, right? This, this shepherd, the under-shepherd, has taken you to a nice little green patch because you're too stupid. You'd still be over in the dry patch, <laughs> right? So he says, all right, get them over there, hook some of them, beat the crap out of some others because they're stubborn and arrogant. So just bring them with, but I'm not going to let them go. Do you understand what he said? I'm not going to let you go. So even if you're a stubborn, arrogant person, no matter what you say, no matter how much false teachers tell you, oh, you can decide against Christ even after you're saved, that's a lie from the pit of hell. You know how I know? Because Jesus Christ says, I'm not going to lose you. You're not going to be able to walk away. And as his apostles said, if you walk away, you were never mine. You were never of the faith. You were a little pretender. Like so many people are right now, I'm assuming yeah, it's what, 10.30, probably a lot of churches in session. There's an awful lot of people listening to some bozo, uh, probably maybe even a woman, 
with a rainbow flag out front celebrating ridiculousness, all that kind of garbage going on right now, and they feel holy, and they feel emotionally charged up, and it's all a pack of lies given by a bunch of prostitutes selling this right here, the most precious gift we've been given, which is Jesus Christ, the very Word, selling it for profit. God forbid they tell the truth and they lose half their congregation. What a bunch of cowards. Anyways, seeing the big, well, seeing the big picture is freedom. Seeing the forest through the trees is critical to understanding the very mind of Christ. With that said, let's review just a bit of our recent lessons from our a big picture perspective and head on back in the direction of our primary course of study. We're not getting there today. Uh, we will presumably next week. But we're going in the direction. We're, we, we've deep-dived, and we're coming back out, and we're going to look at some of the writing on the wall and see if we can collect some of this big picture on our way out. And again, we're getting back to why the apostles so encouraging. By grace, they were prepared. The Spirit began Thursday's message with an interesting statement up here on the board. This was when Scott was teaching this past Thursday. On Big Picture Freedom, so many enjoyed the India mission lessons because there is peace and stability from honoring God's authority. Humble people love and crave authority orientation. They possess a, quote, tell me the right way to do it and I'll do it kind of attitude. That's what good fruit looks like. Humble people love and even crave authority orientation. Why? Because they want to be pleasing to God. That's why. From that lesson we have up here on the board, honoring all authority, wisdom tells us to honor authority and it will be well with us. Honor divine authority and you will be blessed. And all authority is ultimately from God. Romans 13, 1-7. The Spirit is training all of us to stop kicking against authority, to accept it as being from God, and humbly honor it, accepting the rewards of God in the process. Again, but one caveat here that the Spirit's bringing up for whoever needs it, somebody in here must need it, at least one of you, Honoring authority, the one caveat that he's having me bring up here is that you, if an authority tells you to dishonor God or disobey God or say, I want you to honor another God, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that because that statement would be against the ultimate will of God. All is saved and come to the knowledge of Him. So just keep that in mind. I don't know who needed to hear that, but that's something that's not even in my notes. God the Holy Spirit wanted me to say that. No authority has the right to buck against the authority or ask you to do the, that very thing. Do you understand what I'm getting at? In other words, denounce Christ, let's say, for another God for a little God, that kind of a thing. 
So, in essence, let's get back to the lesson. I loved how the Spirit brought out the principle that we are the bride of Christ. The women depicted in Proverbs 31 throughout the so-called virtuous woman passage that we ought to be considering. It's not just about women in Proverbs 31. Obviously, that's what the virtuous woman looks like. There's a lot of evidence of one. Uh, and that shouldn't be scary to anyone, and no one should be condemned. Oh, I'm nothing like that. You know I got that feedback immediately after class, right? Oh, you started teaching on it, and I was just saying to myself, I'm nothing like that woman. So? So, what are you going to throw in the towel? Now you know what God wants out of you, where he's taking you. So, stop being sophomoric about it. Stop being so emotional. But the, 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 the higher principle that came out last week was, hey, aren't we the bride of Christ? Yeah. So if we're going to be a virtuous woman to our husband, shouldn't we actually look at this passage as well? Yeah. And so this is what God uh, had given Scott to teach on this past week. The virtuous woman, her greatest attribute is that she fears the Lord. She loves him and serves him always. Every other task in her daily walk is a function of serving him. For this she is praised rightly. You read the Bible, you know that speaks about all of you. Serving the Lord. And here was the tremendously valuable counsel from the pulpit this past week. And this is really good advice. For more introspection about your role as the bride of Christ, read Proverbs 31, 10-31. And insert yourself in there as the virtuous woman to your Lord and Savior. So men out there, don't just say to your wife, hey, pick up your Bible and read Proverbs 31 because you're getting a little slack. <laughs> you might look in the mirror, gentlemen. She might turn it around and go, how about you read it? So amazing principles from an array of lessons only God himself could have organized from eternity past. As we continue to step out of this mind shaft, let's pick up yet a few more friendly reminders along the way. Some principles from the past two months of lessons that should ring a bell and help solidify said big picture. For example, arguably one of the most difficult realizations for redeemed people. This is the one that I struggle with anytime I have any kind of intimate chat with anyone that's interested in, in, in love, truly in love with the Lord, this one kills us. This one hurts. This is like being stabbed. But it's, it's true. In general, people don't want the truth. Man, that's terrible. What do you do then? In general, they don't want it. You can give them the truth all day long. They literally don't want it. As a general rule, truth is light, but the darkness in them hates the light. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. John 3.20 This is why many turn away, leave the faith, or ignore conviction. John 3.21 But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as, have, as having been wrought in God. Jesus said that, not Pastor Ed. 
you know, just think about this for a second. Darkness hates the light. Just think about that. Darkness hates the light. Even if said darkness exists in a disciple of Christ. That darkness hates the light. It's going to resist. The flesh can't stand the light because the light debilitates it. Takes away all, any strength that has been fooling you it has over you. Remember, when you're saved, you're no longer under the sovereignty or the rulership of sin. So, where does that take you? Darkness hates the light. Satan, your flesh, your enemies will tell you that there's real power over you, but it doesn't, it shouldn't have any real power over you. We have something that can defeat everything called faith, and out of this faith we have freedom. So let's call it faith-based freedom. When, simple, when sinful people hear the truth, in their arrogance they reject it. Grace is given to the humble, resulting in freedom. John 8.32 Remember, you may, quote, have the truth, but you may not possess it. There's a difference. One is knowledge, one is faith. Kind of akin to what we noted with, I never knew you, and I know my sheep. Same idea. You can have the truth. You may, you, know, you may have a Bible at home. You may have read it through more than once, maybe. But you can have knowledge, but no faith. God gives faith, grace to the humble. And what did we learn? Again, big picture, John 8, 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Not surprisingly, this, quote, freedom theme hasn't been isolated to just the start of this morning's class. It's been something the Spirit's been salting our lessons with all along. Again, I would argue from day one of this ministry, He's been salting our lessons with freedom, this theme, all along. I'm convinced that a lot of people, a lot of people are suffering perpetually because they lack faith. Suffering perpetually because they lack faith. And for believers, the logical reason for this is a lack of humility. Well, how do I know that? Because God gives grace to the humble. <laughs> if you lack faith, it means He never gave it to you. Because God gives a measure of faith to each, as He so desires. So if you don't receive something by grace, it means that you're not humble enough. How that translates in specifics in your life, that's between you and the Lord. I'm just teaching what the Bible says. God gives grace to the humble. Faith is a gift, a grace gift. So if you don't have faith, what would you say? You're lacking humility somewhere in your life. That's why you're suffering. That's why you're still miserable. Concentrate for a second. We call that, by the way, deserved suffering. If you're suffering that way, you get everything you deserve. If you continue to disregard the Word of God, refusing to submit to it in humility so that faith results, then you are setting yourself up for pain. This is self-inflicted in the same sense that if you walk into a lion's cage, you can expect to be bitten. Is that the lion's fault? No. That's you being stupid. Galatians 6, 7, 
Some of you need to look in the mirror and look at your own lives and say, what kind of decisions am I making, by the way? Am I arrogant? Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived because God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. God's never mocked. So just reflect on that for a second. Big picture again. There's no such thing as God not addressing evil. There may be a certain waiting period. There may be things going on in your life that you haven't attributed to your own arrogance yet. And you have to learn, oh, I mean, all these years, that's been my fault? I've been suffering because I'm an in, I don't know, let's say I'm an unforgiving jerk? Yeah, you're suffering because you won't forgive this other person. That's like literally stupidity. But you see, there's a maturity principle in there because most people don't get that. They don't have faith in it. They say, oh, yeah, it looks good on paper. Oh, yeah, it sounds great. But they don't have faith. So in their heart, they've never truly forgiven that person that may have really wronged them. And, and all I think about in that case is, I'm saying this from my own perspective, when I'm you know, struggling sometimes with forgiveness on something, all I can say is, who the hell am I? Honest to God. Who the hell? You know some of the crap that's gone in my life that I'm totally responsible for and Jesus Christ died on a cross for? Who the hell am I not to forgive this other person for something far, and not that magnitude matters, but far less of an infraction for? It's unbelievable. We're so ready to pounce and judge other people when we are ridiculous right? We are wretched, horrible. If we were a smell, we'd be a smell like a sewer. <laughs> I'm serious. Everybody in here, right? You're like, yeah, you kind of would. I totally agree. <laughs> Me, I'd maybe be an old flower. No, that means you're worse than a sewer, whatever that would be. I don't want to speculate because it could get gross, but it's amazing. Just think about that. And then we have the audacity to turn around and go, boy, you're a real piece of work. <laughs> Do you know you wronged me in 1957? And you never asked for, for my forgiveness. What? So you mean to tell me you've been stewing on this for 60, 70 years? That's right. I've been living a good life. Seems like that's your problem. Yeah, you're right. Anyways, there's no such thing as God not addressing evil because he's not mocked. He might patiently put something off, but he's never mocked. As believers, if it exists in your life, there are repercussions, even if you don't fully understand them yet. I'd argue that many people are miserable and they don't even know why. They don't even know why. Siri, do you know somebody like that? If it's not you? I mean, we all have a little bit of that. Why am I so miserable? You wake up on the wrong side of the bed, you're like, why am I so crabby? What's wrong with me today? And then you have to like actually pray to God. What's going on in my soul? What's, 
Oh, I watched that stupid movie last night. It put something insidious in my soul, and now I'm all up in arms. Now I'm, I'm, I'm torn up. Either that or it could have been the 12 beers you had along with the movie. And now you're hungover, and you said and did something stupid. You know what I'm getting at? Everybody? No. I'm the only jerk, obviously. Most people, or many people, I wouldn't say most, but many people are miserable and they don't even know why. The answer is very simple. They either lack Christ altogether and need salvation, or they have Christ but have authority issues. And so pick and choose which parts of his mind they will abide in. They have authority issues. They say, I don't like this, this verse or that passage. I don't like that doctrine or this doctrine. So I throw that one out, and God's like, you're so stupid. That's the same one that's making you miserable. And if you just stopped doing that, you'd realize that's why you're miserable. But you keep throwing it out. I get the ball guy up there faithfully, right? And the other guy that's not bald up there faithfully. And I have them, like, pumping out truth, and you won't listen to them. What's the problem? That's why you're miserable. Why don't you stop for a second and listen? The beginning of discipline. Review, remember. When a person chooses a sinful lifestyle, they immediately take on the daily pressure of living outside the will of God. This robs them of their peace and contentment, for an unsettled conscience serves as an agitator. If they aren't agitated, maybe they have a bigger problem. Maybe they're not saved. I don't know. But this is the beginning of, of discipline. And this is wisdom you're reading. When a person lives a sinful lifestyle, they immediately take on the daily pressure of living outside the will of God. God's not good with that, and God is not mocked. And he gave you a little thing called a conscience that's going to agitate you, that's going to be back there going, hey, you know what you're doing is messed up, right? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then, you know, the same person. I'm so miserable. Reflect. Life is not meant to be lived like Hollywood tempts you. This is half our problem. We're a media society. Most people get their daily doctrine from a flat screen or an internet connection. Fair enough? That would be what I would argue. Even Christians. Most Christians have no idea who Christ even is. I, I've under, I, it's unbelievable. I don't want to get di- I don't want to digress, but that's where most people get their doctrines. And then to, to boot, most people aren't parenting their children, so the children learn about everything from a screen. And who's pumping out that screen? Hollywood. Are you serious? You could, it'd be like literally saying, okay, Hmm, let's see, I gotta go out. We gotta go out. We have um, you know, a baby, a two-year-old, and a five-year-old. We gotta go out, we gotta have someone look after our children. Let me see. Charles Manson. What? That's what you're doing. Stick him in front of a television. You might as well have Charles Manson raising or looking after your kids. Because people aren't parenting their children. Go play a video game where there's literally brains being splat on the wall or grand theft auto kids 
in elementary school playing Grand Theft Auto where you can rip, rip people out of their car, pound on their head and then steal their car and go bang into cops and shoot at cops and kill people. But at least they're not bothering you during the game. Hey, I bought you this new, I paid 60 just so you could be the first kid on the block. I paid $75 for the latest Grand Theft Auto Part 28 rape and pillage. I don't care if it says an M++ on there, it says mature audience only. You're, you're pretty mature for a six-year-old, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm totally mature, Dad. Have fun, kid. And he's down there for eight hours. He comes out like this. I didn't even know that stuff existed in this world. <laughs> Life is not meant to be lived like Hollywood tempts you to. Think about it. Who are the characters... Let's face this, that Americans love to love in the movies. Just think about this. Big picture, anti-authority. They aren't typically the straight-laced folks, are they? At least not in today's society. They are the characters who have the so-called courage to buck authority at every turn, to show said authority how wrong they are. That's what Hollywood says. Those are the true, you know, courageous people in our society. They buck authority at every turn. Some people call them the progressives. I'm thinking about the same mindset that attacks the presidency of the United States. And it doesn't matter what you think about our current president, Donald Trump. I don't care what you think. And neither does God. You know what? Who's our president? Say it louder. There you go. Don't worry. Nobody's going to come in here and, and burn the place down. Why is everybody so nervous? What's wrong with you people? Why is everybody so stinking nervous? What's wrong with you? That is our president. You don't like it? Leave the country. I'm not, this isn't about politics, my friends. This is about what's going on in our country. That is just a, a that is fruit of ungodliness. Fruit of anti-authority orientation. The fact is that, you know, he is your president if you're an American citizen. Yet it seems half of our country would rather bog his efforts down with anti-authority issues rather than letting him attempt at doing something good for those he's sworn to serve. You know, those who God put under his charge. Because every authority is granted by God. So says the word of God. And so these social justice warriors are actually making millions of dollars being heralded by the masses as people worthy of praise. Why should, just put it into perspective, why should attacking anyone in authority ever be praised? Why should attacking anyone in authority ever be praised? It's just ugly. It's plain ugly. But if you look at the proponents of such things, they are the same folks who challenge authority at every turn. But enough of that. That's just a primary example of people wasting their time bucking God's chain of command. 
if, as the Spirit's been encouraging us, we just took a step back and realized how precious life itself is, maybe, just maybe, we'd find the peace we're all looking for. And this was a principle from our lessons as well. The gift of life. True satisfaction is a gift from God. If we charge through life with sinful abandon, we risk ruin. There are many things to enjoy, but they must be enjoyed in, you ready for this? Faith and obedience. Ecclesiastes 11.9 So let's read some of Solomon's divinely imparted wisdom now from one of the greatest illustrations of big picture thinking we have available to us. And no, it's not the latest self-help book from Stephen Covey or that Nephilim guy that does speeches. What's it? Tony Robbins. Go to Ecclesiastes 11.7. Talk about a vile creature. Ecclesiastes 11.7. This is true wisdom. It doesn't come on a flat screen unless you're watching this afterwards and I'm reading it. It doesn't come from Hollywood. This comes from the Word of God. Ecclesiastes 11.7. And this is wisdom. It's really hard to impart to young people. But geez, don't you just feel like shaking young people, all you old people out there, and say, would you please listen to Solomon? Trust me. I didn't trust it. I did my own way. I took the long way. Does anybody ever take the short way? I don't know. Seems not. But we can hope. You feel like shaking kids and going, please, will you just like shortcut this whole thing? Take it from me. Oh, dad, you just, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay. Ecclesiastes 11.7. The light is pleasant and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. And let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. At times, Solomon's words seem dark and even a little depressing, right? They do to me anyways. But you must understand that like any person in possession of divine wisdom, there are times when Solomon simply must express the truth about a subject. Sometimes subjects are just dark. Okay. It doesn't mean that he suffered from severe depression or even delusions about being overcome with darkness. Remember, Solomon was a saved man, the son of David, whose humility shines throughout the annals of time. I was speaking with someone about this last week, trying to explain that even from the pulpit, there are times when the subject matter seems dark. And in all fairness to truth, it actually is. But here's the distinction. When I am asked to teach you about dark subject matter, it means I've been asked to lead you to take a brief swim in the subject. And sometimes you feel icky all over. You come out of a lesson, you're like, ugh. I just feel like, ugh. That was just dark. I'm all, see? <laughs> so, that was for effect. God did that for me. It's just dark. Right? It's true, right? Sometimes we've got to take these deep dives and we go places that it's just dark. But here's my advice on this. The baby in the bathwater. While contemplating evil, never lose sight of eternal life in Christ. 
In order to, quote, see it all as truth, we must at times venture down some dark passageways. However, do not become myopic. That means nearsighted. Losing sight of the big picture, for you will suffer unnecessarily if you do. It's okay to think about dark things. Why? Because evil still exists in our world. It's okay to understand your enemy. But you've got to pull back to the light. Don't become depressed. And as Ephesians 5 says, that's seeing it all as truth because whatever is revealed by light becomes light. Whatever the light shines on, even if the light shines into darkness, you say, well, that's darkness, and the things hiding out in there are really evil. Knowing those things exist becomes light, becomes truth. And so you just don't spend all your time there. That's the point. The point I'm making is that it's a good thing to investigate what the Bible has to say about this or that, even darkness. Just don't be sucked into it. Our example here is from Solomon, who's essentially saying, you know, something like this, enjoy the good things in life while you have them, because eventually you'll be dealing with bad things too. Especially as you get older, body starts breaking down, that kind of a thing. And again, he's not trying to depress anyone. He's just being totally transparent for the sake of that incredible blessing, which is what we call perspective. He's just saying, you know what, guys? You feeling dark? Been there. You feeling worn out? I've been there. You feeling like you've been chasing happiness and nothing's happening, you still don't have peace? I've been there. Been there. He's giving you perspective. But the only way that it's viable is if you understand that he understands what you're going through, that he wrote about it, that you can relate to it. So perspective. You'll never have divine perspective if you refuse to accept things for what they are at face value. This means two basic things. Enjoy the light and the knowledge of darkness, not the darkness, but rather the knowledge or the understanding of it that produces wisdom. Again, you'll never have divine perspective if you refuse to accept things for what they are at face value. This means two basic things. Enjoy the light and the knowledge of darkness. The book of Ecclesiastes gives us perspective. Again, go to Ecclesiastes 11.7. The light is pleasant and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things, whether pleasant or unpleasant judgment. I taught you about that not that long ago. Verse 10, so remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened and clouds return after the rain. In other words, your perspective should be as follows up here on the board. Life is short. 
I would say this is true, especially for those over the age of 50. Honestly, I've been trying to tell, I mean, Sean's 16 now, and he's like, yeah, time's flying by. He's halfway through his high school career. It's like, time's flying by. I'm like, yeah, and it just keeps getting faster. Every year seems to go, like, is this long? It just contracts. Every year seems to get faster and faster and faster. So for, like, Bill, it's like this. Another year just went by. Now I need a heart defibrillator or whatever. <laughs> Life is short, right? It really is. But it takes perspective. Ask anyone over the age of 50 years old if this is true. Time seems to accelerate as we get older. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 to 2. Imagine that. It's biblical. So we ought to make the most of our time as servants of the Lord. The right perspective motivates us to live this way. For example, understanding the big picture. See, the longer we live, the more we're inundated with other knowledge, right? I mean, oh, I remember, oh yeah, I remember, I remember. We just have more and more memories, right? Serialized in what we call life. Well, there's more and more of that stuff in your sort of pocket, in your thoughts in your brain, stuffed into your brain. And the more stuff you have stuffed in your brain, the more likely you are to be distracted by these things. Or preoccupied, maybe, if that's your weakness. And this, that, and the other. The right perspective, though, understanding the big picture, motivates us to live as servants of the Lord. Hold your thumb. Go to James 4.13. Hold your thumb. James 4.13. So we're after that wonderful blessing called perspective. And the big picture certainly does keep our perspective in check. That's what he's been trying to say. He's saying, you know, it's good to go look at things, go down into the weeds. But when you go down into the weeds, right? I mean, if you go down the beach today and you stick your head in the weeds, people might look, but whatever. You stick your head in the weeds, you can no longer see the beach or the ocean, right? You might see a, a seashell or a crab. But, you know, then you stand up, you go, oh, man, the crab tried to bite me in the nose, but he's down there and I'm way up here and life is good now. I can see the ocean again. It's all good. Nobody's ever done that? Okay. Well, if you were faster getting to James 4.13, I wouldn't have to tell ridiculous stories. James 4.13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Tomorrow! You guys are planning out a year. He's like, you don't even know what your life's going to be like tomorrow. So what are you doing? You are just a vapor. How dare you? Jesus' brother. Who do you think you are? You're just a vapor that appears for a little while, and then guess what? Vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if this is what you want, we will live and also do this or that. Whatever you want, Lord. I just want to be pleasing to you. Right? That's perspective for you. And the older you get and the faster life seems to get, the more you realize that that's very true. Life is like a vapor. It's fleeting. Every year is going faster, 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 faster. There's only so much time. I should be serving the Lord. That's what I should be doing. All right, go back to Ecclesiastes 12.1 now. Ecclesiastes 12.1. Some more 
divine wisdom, divine perspective. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened and clouds return after the sun again up here on the board. Life is short, my friends. Ask anyone of any age is getting on in age. If this is true, they'll say yes. Time seems to accelerate as we get older. This is what even Solomon knew. So we ought to make the most of our time as servants of the Lord. The right perspective motivates us to live this way. For example, understanding the big picture. Verse 3, In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, and mighty men stoop, the grinding ones still uh, stand idle because they are few, and those who look through windows grow dim, and the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. And one, who, uh, one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the carp, uh, caper berry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Of course, this is a reference to literally physic, physical death, but there are some other allusions there. Uh, this last verse is a reference to funerals even people mourning uh, after you die, after everything dims out. So there's some additional symbolism one might argue for or against in this entire passage, but we don't have the time or license to investigate it. But suffice to say, regarding keywords such as the watchman, doors and windows, silver cords and golden bowls and such, some say that all these are symbols of the aging body that eventually breaks down and dies. In any case, what Solomon is sharing is divine wisdom more specifically, perspective, it's true. Life is short. So before you die, before you die, you ought to get your head and your priorities straight. I would be willing to bet, and I'm including myself, that everybody in here at some point in life said, there'll be time for that later. I'm 20. Come on, bald man. I'm 16. There's plenty of time for that later. Yeah, I had a, a, a niece die at 19. What do you mean later? Some of you probably know people that have died earlier than that. What do you mean later? What's later? If you're supposed to be living for today, what's later then? Later today? What are you waiting for? Get your priorities straight is what he's saying. Not because I'm demanding it, because that's what's right for you, what's good for you. Stop being miserable. Ecclesiastes 12.6 Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanities of vani vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is Vanity. And just for balance, this is the same person who penned Proverbs 16.31 that says, A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. So he's not, in other words, he's not just speaking doom and gloom. Oh, when you get old, you know, it just stinks. And there's nothing good. No, 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 no. Remember what I said. He's describing something specific to make a point and give perspective and wisdom on a certain point, that life is fleeting, and you might as well get right with God. Remember your Creator, even in your youth. 
So this is the same person who wrote, A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. So you see how very important, once again, that context is in the Bible. You must strive to understand the context of every passage so that you may fully place it in its rightful place within the body of Holy Scripture. And like a jigsaw puzzle that has a million pieces to it, you won't see the big picture until you're done trying to fit the pieces rightly together and then step way back to see the whole of it. You ever done that? How many pieces was that one, Sean? 5,000 we did in New Hampshire? No, I think it was another zero. It was 5,000. <laughs> Sean's, I don't know what Sean's problem is. He's young. He's lost. We're going to talk about this later. <laughs> was it only 500? It seemed like 5,000. Hey. Anyways, what happens when you get old? 500. It was a lot of pieces, right? It was like this big. And I'm, I remember sitting and you're like, where does this little thing go? It's like got some weird shape. You're like, how am I ever going to find this? It looks like a sail. It looks like a person. It looks like a piece of dirt. How do I know? And you spend forever looking, right? And you know where, you're not even thinking about that thing. We do that sometimes. We, we find a piece of the puzzle in the Bible. And we say, where does that fit? And you spend time, you know, some more than others, but you spend time, and you're like, ah, oh, what does that thing fit? The worst thing you can do is spend all your time just looking at pu tiny puzzle pieces, maybe even being frustrated. Step back. See the good work that he's saying. You can see a panoramic view of what he's doing. Pieces are missing, but you can see it coming together in your life. And that's beautiful, and it's encouraging. You're like, oh, it's coming together. Let me go back in. See? That's what happens when you make 5,000-piece puzzles. <laughs> I don't know what Sean was working on. But. Life is short. Make it count. Go to Proverbs 23.1. <laughs> there are a lot of distractions, my friends. This world is designed to take you away from truth, from freedom. Proverbs 23.1. Here's an old friend that we reviewed this past couple of months. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat. In other words, curb your appetites. If you are a man of great appetite, do not desire his delicacies, for it is deceptive food. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. Go to verse 17. Verse 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners but live in the fear of the Lord always. Why? Because life is short. Same author that wrote Ecclesiastes. Remember your creator in your youth. Why? Because life is short. Live your life with fear of the Lord. Why? Because life is short. James said your life's a vapor. What are you doing planning a year out even? You don't even know what you're going to be doing tomorrow. Doesn't mean to be reckless because there's verses on that as well. But these are the 
principles we have before us. Here's another principle as we continue tracing our steps back up to where we left off a couple of months ago. Losing freedom. Sin is designed to create ties that bind us to worldly things. It is designed to rob us of the freedom that Christ has afforded every believer. Galatians 5.1. That's what sin does. It's a thief. Conversely, up here on the board, freedom exists in those moments when we loose our ties to the world and cling solely to Christ. So a lot of you need to go like this. I often wonder, like today's kind of a, it's not, not the biggest crowd we've ever had, obviously. I always think, is everybody in here that's not, or everybody's not here today, is there any of this going on? Is there something that has tied them to the world that has precluded them from being here? That's a shepherd's concern. I don't know. And we're not to judge them, but that is a viable concern. Maybe for the next time you decide to, you know, play hooky from church. It makes no sense. You're basically hurting yourself. Why don't you just take a pin and stick it in your arm? Don't do that, because that's not biblical. Because it's not biblical, but if it was, I would teach it. (laughs) Moving on. Remember this one? True conviction passes through real discomfort. Romans 5, 3 to 5, James 1, 2 to 4, 5, 11, 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9. Paul went so far as to say that we ought to exult in such things. Go to Romans 5, 3. Romans 5, 3. Some of you say, yeah, but, you know, for me to change my life, for me to look at my life and then make changes, it's going to be painful. Yeah, no kidding. What's painful? Well, my fingernails are ripping off because I've been white-knuckling this fleshly living, this sinful lifestyle for my whole life, and I don't want to let it go because it feels good. I like it. I like bebopping around. I like being a prostitute. I like tearing my eyes off of Jesus Christ. I like doing all this stuff because it makes my flesh really happy. And then I'm in dysfunction junction. Remember like the blog said? I'm in dysfunction junction. I'm going through this cycle called life, and I'm up and I'm down. I'm up and I'm down. I'm up and I'm down. And there's no such thing as normal anymore. Matter of fact, this up and down, this dysfunction junction has become my normal. So when I try to back out of it, life is boring. So boring. Uh, right? What's the problem? Just think about that. You don't think you don't think I'm describing half the people here are probably like stop nodding. That's dysfunction junction. And what is what is America famous for? Hey, here's another drug. I don't mean just drugs. Drugs exist, but here's another drug. Here's another thing to intoxicate you. Here's another thing. Here's another thing. Here's another thing to distract you. But it would be so difficult to give up my life. You know, I'm in school now. I'm in college. And there's all these distractions. I want to date. I don't care what the ball guy. I don't, not even the ball guy. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to date. Why? Because I'm going to stab myself with a pin. Because I'm a masochist. I don't know. Because i got problems. That's what I'm going to do. Because there's some hot girls there. Why is nobody laughing? I'm serious. I'm not a crackpot for teaching that stuff. That's biblical. Anyways, you there yet? Romans 5.3. It's not my fault. 
And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Why are you such a goody two-shoes? Why are you so prim and proper? I'm spitting. Why are you so prim and proper? Why don't you date? Huh? Huh, Sean? Huh? Sean's like, oh. <laughs> told you I'd get you back. Get you back, 500. <laughs> right? Why won't you date? Why, what's wrong with you? What are you trying to be? Oh, Oh, you think you're better than me. You're a Christian. Are you born again too? Are you better than me now? No, I'm actually wretched. I'm trying to stay out of the, the pit. That's the kind of perseverance. That's the kind of tribulation you're going to go through, young people. People are not going to understand any of this stuff. And not only this, but we also exult in your, our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, is a novel word in today's society, especially with young people. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Another familiar passage on this, go to James 1.2. James 1.2. I know, I just got on the... Young people's least popular list. <laughs> I don't care. Love me, hate me. I'm here to do a job. James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That means mature. To the fullness of Christ, let's say, to the person of Christ, that means mature. So you've got to go through those things. That's the point of the board. True conviction passes through real discomfort up here on the board. We count those blessed who endured. We are out of time for now, uh, but we have made our way back to our primary course of study, which is this. Why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared. If you recall, we departed with a view uh, of when the Lord Jesus Christ tested the apostles and Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? He's like, you're going to leave me too? Where are we going to go? That's one of the signs of being a true disciple. You are convinced there is no other way to go. You're not entertaining other religions because there are no other religions there are no other ways to God. You're not stuck there. That's one of the reasons you know you're saved, because you say literally in your you know, quote, heart of hearts, in your soul, you have faith that says, where else am I going to go? There's nowhere else to go. This was evidenced in Peter's famous words up here on the board. Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter's words epitomize the one thing that separated the apostles from the rest of Jesus' quote, disciples, some of which weren't yet saved, a la John 6, 64, 1 John 2, 19. Humility, where are we going to go? Submission, surrender are fruit of humility, the essence of God's grace in salvation. The challenge presented by the Lord Jesus Christ proves the following up here on the board. Jesus taught his disciples to have their own convictions. He then gave them his spirit to teach, encourage, and empower this. We all have the word of and the spirit of Christ by grace. So here's the framework that we keep coming back to in our curriculum. Sending the apostles out, Jesus called them. He trained them out. He trained them up academically and on the job training. That's OJT. Jesus sent them out. So this is the, where we're going. This is the 
the high arching curriculum that we're on. Why all this training by grace? Why are the apostles so encouraging? 2,000 years later, up here on the board, my final principle, I promise, by grace they were prepared. The great work for any believer is to spread the gospel. We need to be literally changed by grace through faith in order to accomplish this good work. Jesus has left his precious salvation ministry to his sheep to carry on. You know, I didn't say his shepherds to his sheep. That's all of you. Me too. I'm a sheep. By grace, they were prepared. The great work for any of us, if we're saved, is to spread the gospel. But that can't happen unless you're literally changed. Not some weird, you know, pseudo-spiritual, emotional thing that goes on. When you're saved, you may, there's, there's no say there's going to be some emotional upheaval. You're saved. It's a fact. You're changed. It's a fact. And then you learn what your purpose is after salvation. That's why we call it the Great Commission. Bring others to Christ. Is there a greater thing? Nope. So what are you doing then? That's what you have to ask yourself. What are you doing with your life? Is your lifestyle in the direction of the Great Commission? Is it somehow bringing glory to God? Or are you in that bucket that says, there's plenty of time for this later. I'm doing this right now. I'm doing that right now. And a year from now, I'm going to be doing this. But you're just a vapor. You don't know what your life is tomorrow. Are you going in the right direction or not? What are we doing here? What are you saving up for? Are you stocking your barns some more? Are you going to go to your grave with these things? What, is it? what are you doing? What are you investing in? When the Lord said, buy from me, gold refined by fire. What are we doing? That's why the apostles were so encouraging. He said, we're not going to go anywhere else because there's nowhere else to go. That's big picture. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for the privilege of gathering together as family and the unity of the faith to break bread, to learn about your grace, your mercy, your love, your faithfulness. Thank you for giving us the perseverance to press on. Thank you for reminding us of the major things, big picture items such as your son, our Lord and Savior, our great shepherd. He's never going to let his own go. We hear his voice and we follow him. How precious that is. We ask for traveling mercies as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.